Vintage Sand. Hello, 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 Vintage Sand fans, listeners, and lovers. We are back. That's right, Team Vintage Sand, episode 49. And I think you probably can guess what this one was going to be about because uh, we're going back to all the way to episode 17. Way back in the day, five years ago, we devoted the entire episode to uh, Martin Scorsese's um, uh, The Irishman. Uh, another three and a half hour epic. So yeah, it's five years, man. Two thousand eighteen. I know. We were so much younger then. It was such a di- it was such a different time. Life was beautiful, <laughs> and full and filled with promise. But we've got a new one. We've got a new three and a half Scorsese uh, hour Scorsese epic, um, based on one of my favorite nonfiction books of the. Um, of the last few years, David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon, of course. And so we are going to devote episode 49 to that film. Uh, and it sounds like we have some differing opinions on it, which means it's going to be a really good episode. So the episode is called Killers of the Flower Moon. It's just the way this is going right now, which is a line that shows up several times in the film. This film, we're going to do what we did when the very few times that we've done one film, we're going to both look at the film itself uh, for what it is and also then, of course, towards the end, try to sort of place it within the context of the director's oeuvre uh, and career. So yeah, I, I could never the, say that word either. I thought the French pronunciation was, was très bon, but there you go. First of all, you know, saying that it was based on Grand's book, one of the things that I absolutely love about the movie is that... Grant's book is at least half devoted to the FBI. Yes. Because the Bureau of Investigation... That's, that's the big, big change that they made. And I think that is a wonderful thing. It was lovely to have everybody come in at the end, the, then the Bureau of Investigation, soon to be called the and FBI. And originally, DiCaprio was going to play yes. the FBI. Yeah. The uh, the Jesse Plemons yeah. character. Yeah. 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 When, when they were working on the screenplay, they said they were having a lot of difficulty. It wasn't really working well. And it was like they had some meetings, and it was like, where is the heart of this? Mm-hmm. And it was DiCaprio who suggested, what if you know they started to change the viewpoint? How, let's let's change the you know perspective of this. And then there was the suggestion from DiCaprio that what if I play Ernest? And that completely changed everything and it made it more about their relationship and, and his point of view and his his turmoil. Right. And and well and worlds colliding. I mean it yeah. was De Niro Scorsese meets DiCaprio Scorsese <laughs> and fireworks. Uh, you know, I yeah. thought the two yeah. of them alone and together were great. But let's let's begin by talking about the thing that is uh, that most people talk about first when they uh, mention this movie is the length. Um was it a film that needed to be three and a half hours? Did, I how did you feel? Think the t- it needed to be longer. Wow, I, I actually it's almost miniseries. Kind I, of. Yes, that's what I. That's it's watching the second time. I almost felt. I, I feel that it, I would have liked to have seen a miniseries to flesh out some aspects of it more. I would right. have liked to have seen more of it too. Well, and the thing, one of my main objections is that, you know, it's not meant to be an anthropological documentary, but we get precious little about the Osage themselves. I mean, they spend most of their time in this movie lining up as victims. Right. And, you know, again, that's not really the point of the movie, mm-hmm. but I think I would have liked to have seen more of that than well, the Well, that's one of the criticisms that other indigenous 
um, tribes, people who make films, have criticized the film. Yeah, I've listened to a few interviews from uh, some anthropologists and indigenous people, anthropologists, and, mm -hmm. and there was one woman, I can't, I'm sorry, I forget her name now, she really didn't like the movie, and she said it's just another white man movie. I, yeah. There was also an article in the Times about the same thing, although yeah. all the criticisms seemed to be that it was made by a white man. They weren't that specific yeah. on the movie itself. I got a feeling no matter what they would have done, I'm sorry, they, because a white man made it. Well, it was kind of doing a Schindler's List, which told a very Jewish story through a Christian, you know, through Christian intercession in, Sch in Schindler. This was also the story of the Osage being told through the lens or through the viewpoint, anyway, mm -hmm. of these two white guys. Yeah. So I guess that's what people objected to. I don't think that's necessarily um, dings it in my book, but I just wanted more about the Osage. I yeah. mean, the history is yeah, so we get, interesting. We get, yeah, we get a taste of it. But yeah, that which is another reason why I think I would have liked to see a miniseries to flesh all of that out more, and uh, and get a lot more background about how this all developed. Right, and how they got there—the fact that they were kicked off their land once yeah. to the Midwest, yeah. and then when people realized that you could actually grow wheat in Kansas, newsflash, they kicked them out again them to out what, yeah. the most worthless piece of land they could find in northern right. Oklahoma right. until. And that's where the film opens with yeah. the, I mean... I love that opening. Oh, my God. It's oh. a little, I mean, the funeral and the oil, it's a little on the nose. But, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they bury the pipe and then... Right, and then, and then whoosh, then yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and I love that line that one of the chiefs says later on, you know, we didn't pray for this great life, we prayed for right. life. And, right. you know, the oil, I think they realize right from the beginning what this is going to mean for them. improvised. Really? Yeah, I, I, I heard an interview with Scorsese and they said that they had, they kept trying that whole thing over a few times and then um, they felt like it wasn't working and he wanted to get more reaction shots of all the people and he talked to, uh, I, I forget the name of the actor, I mean he's not really an actor, because he talked about their relationship with each other because he says he's a very, very big man. Right. And he said he felt physically intimidated by him at first because as we all know Scorsese is on the short side. Okay. And um, he said, but as they worked together, they felt more and more comfortable with each other. And he, he asked him, I, I need reaction shots. You think maybe you could talk to them all so that we can get some shots and everything. And he heard all this commotion and noise going on. And De Niro came and I said, you have to see what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and he, saw, he was like, you know, really like passionately talking to them and, and they did the whole thing over again. And they kind of riffed. Yeah, I, I loved it. I, it was it was a little. I get the image. The image is it's a beautiful connector and a metaphor for what yeah. happens to them. Yes. Yeah, a little bit on the nose, but yeah, it was it was it was beautiful. Um, I didn't have that problem at all. All right, so let's. So length not a problem. If anything, uh, too short. Yeah, because also like for example, another thing that I keep thinking about is um, what they kept referring to as the the wasting illness. Right, mm -hmm. and it, it just—it's just a mystery in the movie. I, I would have loved to have seen a little more information about that because indigenous peoples in general, uh, for some reason, have a higher rate of diabetes, and there's an, a condition precluding that—that's this so-called wasting illness. And when they started eating more of the so-called white man's food, which has a lot more refined foods and, and more sugar, sugar and, and alcohol, and alcohol. 
it, it made them sick. But also, people like William Hale saw this as a way to, oh, let's, let's kind of poison some of the stuff they're taking too to kind of move along in their so-called illness and no one will suspect anything. Um, and you had that shot of the, the, the Osage who dies in convulsions. Yeah. Right, at the beginning, and yeah. And you really, it's in there, it's like, okay, well, you know, and then you hear the voiceover, it says, like, you know, no investigation. In reality, in that that particular person was poisoned with strychnine. Yep. Yep. And, I mean, just the, fa I mean, the, the basis of the movie is, you know, for those who don't know, is that the Osage on this worthless land found oil, but the U.S. government viewed them as you know, essentially a child race. Right. And so set up right. a system whereby any kind of transactions they did that were financial in nature or legal yeah. in nature, they had to go through. I mean, it opens with her saying, yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm incompetent number 285, yeah. right? And, and had to ask every time they needed money for something. Yeah. And so, of course... John, as you say, this presented the opportunity for people to to marry in and or find it's other ways. It's so to, perverse. It, the whole the whole the whole thing is just so perverse, and it all goes back to one core thing, which is racism. And yeah, and greed. And greed, yeah, and greed. Which is why my you know my favorite DiCaprio moment is when he's testifying at the end, and John Lithgow says, you know, so you married her to get her rights, and and he's kind of stopped in his tracks, and he said, no, no, I married her because because yeah. she rode in my cab, and yeah. and I I I love her, yeah. and he really did, and he really did, and that's, that's or at least he really believes that he does. Well, I well, mean, I mean, let's face it. He's the dumbest guy well, going. That, that's, one of, that's one of my problems, it's the, which was, I mean, not that De Niro's character in The Irishman was dumb, but he was kind of like a Forrest Gump. He was a chess piece that sort of shows up here and there and is manipulated. And we, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there yeah. are very few moments where we really get to know what he's thinking. But what did you guys, actors in the crew, what did you guys think of the performances? Oh, great. Great? Great. Yeah, I, I, everybody I, across the board was excellent except for Brendan Fraser. Yeah, yeah. Brendan Fraser. It's it's almost like uh, Scorsese told him, "You're the, you're a villain here. You're really awful. Be awful." It, it just it, it, so there was mustache twirling as you're yeah, saying. It, yeah, it it was it just stuck out because everyone else, every little performance from for me mostly an unknown cast. Right, because in the supporting uh, players, apart from uh, you know John Lithgow, of course, pops up as the prosecutor, and Jesse uh, Plemons, I was pretty much unfamiliar with the rest of the cast except for Barry Corbin, who showed up as yeah. the um, yeah. Undertaker. Right, he's yeah. right. Who we haven't seen in a long time. He works on television a lot. Right. Yeah. Okay. Love Barry Corbin. Yeah, I do too. Um, but every little and. A lot of them are, are musicians. Yeah, yes. Charlie Musselwhite, yeah. Jack yeah. White. Um, I wasn't familiar with, and I thought, when I'm watching it the first time, because if, if there's one criticism I would have of the film for me, the first time I saw it was, even though I loved it, I thought, there's so much information that's being thrown at me. I, I, I would get yeah. lost. Had, yes. you, had you read the book before? I had not. 
So I, I mean, I was somewhat yeah. familiar with. Yeah, I had read. Some... I had read the book too. Right, had... and right away, you, I was aware of how he had shifted the perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think when we bring in the rest of Scorsese's career, I mean, in many ways, this is this is all the violence in Scorsese's films rolled into one. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, this is his most violent film. Oh. And instead of it being one gang against another, it's but not one not, people against not at all gory or well. We're going to talk right, and yeah. that's what I want to talk about yeah. because he there's no set pieces. There's no yeah. auteurists yeah. Scorsese. Nope. It's the killings and the violence and the blood are very matter of fact and I think that and really that's, works. And right. yes, right. I was going to say, that's what makes it so chilling. I just, I mean like when the, the one at the very beginning just well, shoots his wife and then takes the baby out of the crib and, like just oh matter of fact. Out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. And we're in Char they, they killed Charlie in the oil field. Yeah. You right. know, just walking behind him and boom. Yeah. But get, uh, getting back to the leads, I think this is DiCaprio's finest performance. I think he is marvelous in it. Oh yeah, he's really. really it's hard to believe him as stupid, though. Oh, I I had no problems. I he, had no problems believing him. Well, I mean, easily manipulated, I guess. Yeah. He's, he's so he's so like wanting to please mm -hmm. his uncle so much. I mean. We don't really know too much about the relationship right. with his parents because the brother is there too. Yeah, yeah. What, and the brother who's what's also, Byron doing there? He's yeah. <laughs> also <laughs> evil. Also, and, I mean, he's he's like I think he's aware that he's completely evil. Yeah, but I, I'm not blaming the performer. The performance no, was no, excellent. No. And I gotta say, if I were teaching an acting class, God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up now, kids. No, don't. <laughs> but if I were, I'd say. Anybody playing a villain needs to see De Niro because yeah. he, I, this is my favorite De Niro performance since Raging Bull. Wow. I mean, I just loved watching him. Every, every scene. And frankly, and there was humor in what and he was he, doing. Yes. Yeah. He's the only one who really brings um, any humor for the most part into and the film, which is needed, but and it's not a lot. Yeah, no, and there's part of me that actually believed, especially with the narration on the radio show at the end, that he genuinely did love these people. That he, that he, yeah. you know, that he could somehow carry both of those ideas that he, you know, built streets for them and houses well, for them and schools and, and also was wiping them out one by one. And yeah, it, he makes that incongruity completely yeah, believable. All delusion, all denial, all, and all, a lot of it all, again, goes back to, to, to racist attitudes yeah, you know, so I mean, he was an entitlement. It felt like he was entitled to the king, to, the king of the Osage Hills. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I, I, here I'm going to make a categorical statement. Lily Gladstone's performance is the best performance by an actress in a Scorsese film, ever. Period. You're going to go Age of Innocence on me, I know. Oh. No. I think I agree with you. She does more. I think she's great in it. Yeah, she's, I think she, she, I love her. She says love very her. little. Mm-hmm. And does yeah. so much with her face yeah. and with her eyes and with her gestures. I talk about it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't yeah, know from acting. Subtext, her but, subtext is just oh, so strong. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with you. Yeah, she is. She is, and she's kind of the center of the movie in yeah. some ways. Although I would, so I, I would have liked, I would have liked to have seen that enlarged more. Yeah. Right. If if. Um, I mean, you know, they're talking about awards and stuff, and so far she's been winning several uh, awards for Best Actress. I worry that she won't get it. I would, the Oscars? I would put yeah, her into the supporting, supporting uh, yeah. category. I mean, it's the whole thing, like Pe when Peggy Ashcroft got leading awards for the critics, but they put her into supporting and she won. Right, I think. Uh, oh, for uh, Passage. Passage yep. India, yeah. Um, but 
I, I just love her. I, I just... And there's so much going on. You just get from, from her reaction in certain moments. We find that there's a lot of going on with her family dynamics. Right. My sisters, when she's talking to the mother and says, I want Anna, it's like... I'm here. Say, so I want Anna, and she's and you. you and Anna's this. the bad girl. Yeah. Anna's the yeah. the drunk oh, yeah. with the with the pistol in her yeah. bag, unfortunately. Yeah. But the, the women who played the three sisters <gasps> were all oh, they're great. All great. Oh, and oh, the, and uh, uh, the mother who is yes. um, oh, who actually somehow got uh, top billing. With I noticed them the four times I saw it. <laughs> you saw it four times. Wow. Well, that's fourteen hours for anyone playing. Yeah, along at but home. the last. Last two times I saw it was on Sunday morning. Some people go to church. I go to the Church of Scorsese. There you go. No, I saw it twice and then I bought it on Amazon so I could watch it over. Yeah, ah, parts okay. of it over and over again. And by the way, if you uh, Lily Gladstone, you may recognize. And if you haven't watched Reservation Dogs on Hulu, it is. I'm going to now. Probably the best uh, television series I've seen in the last five years. And she has a very small part in it, but she is wonderful. And I, I, I think. As we said, uh, De Niro, uh, that De Niro and DiCaprio together and separately, that works. Oh, God, yeah. It's like we've been building up to this for a long, long time. Yeah. And I don't always like DiCaprio. I, I loathe him in uh, Titanic. Yeah, well, I that's, was, that's, <laughs> that's the movie was, that made him that, a star. That's though. an easy movie to loathe. He, he was miscast. He was too young for that. Yes. Yeah. And too, but it didn't, but you know, that the calculation worked because he wanted to cast someone that you know, teenage girls would like, and it worked. And that's who went to go see the movie over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I told you guys when I saw it, there was a, a couple of women in front of us who at one point said, wait, it sinks? <laughs> I don't remember this. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh... <clears throat> News flash, awesome. Lincoln assassinated at theater. <laughs> what? Uh, what? No, he was such a good I guy, just too. I down the street. Oh, my God. All right, and as you say, the interesting casting of, uh, of you know, Sergio Simpson, who's a country musician, Jason Isbell, who's also sort of a, a that's, country... That's Bill Smith, yeah. Yeah, and Pete Young. I mean, that, that, they're, but it just they had that always presence. So, yeah, it yeah. seems so authentic. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and of course... It was like he went back in a time machine and plucked certain people out on the range, you know? It's just... And so, and then turning to some of his collaborators on, and Rodrigo Prieto did the um, oh my god the cinematography, which, as you say, guys, it was very understated. Yeah. for yeah. Scorsese, no, you know, no nothing walk, flashy, no, no four minutes walking into the Copa set pieces. Yeah, yeah but he has was, worked several times with Scorsese. Yes, uh, with um, um, this is the, the Irishman. And uh, Wolf of Wall Street and um, Silence. Yep, no, absolutely. And uh, Jack Fisk, you know, maybe the the reigning king yeah, of production yeah, design. I, know. I, I was, I saw that. It's like, I gotta look him up. How old is he now? Right, he's been mm -hmm. around forever. He's been around so the late sixties, I think he started. Edited by you know who? I mean, oh, the one well, and only Thelma Scudamore. Yeah, Thelma yeah. So, God. And you know, the spirit that kind of presides over the film in some ways, and interesting because he was uh, part indigenous himself, is Robbie Robertson. Oh yes. my God. Yes. Yeah. I wish, um, what's his name, who, who did uh, Oppenheimer? Oh, Nolan. Yeah, Nolan. I wish he could take a less. I know Oppenheimer's the big movie of the year and everything, but I had a problem with the way the music was used. It was too much and too loud. And you're right. I mean, it's I love Zimmer, Nolan, right? but... Not the last no, no. one. No, that's right. It was... Uh, what is her name? 
Yeah, but no, I... And the music has been outrageously praised for Oppenheimer. Yeah, Yeah, well, it was too... I I don't get it. It was was the only thing I didn't like about Oppenheimer. I love Nolan, but I I just think the music is A, not great, and B, mixed way too loud. And I'm not just an old old guy complaining about this. Hey, turn that down! (laughs) But... But Robbie Robertson, the, the music, there was a lot of it. But Scorsese knew exactly what level yeah. it needed to be and, and how repetitive it needed to be. It, it was a beautiful score. I, well, I, he created a, a, a music that was reminiscent of what we usually hear of Native American music, mm-hmm. but also it, had its, it was so foreboding. Yeah, right, and also felt like... It didn't. It didn't exactly replicate nineteen twenties kind of like banjo yeah. music, but yeah. it had that feeling to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, and we. Have, but for me, just now getting into the the film, you know, digging in itself. What makes this so unique is the relationship between Ernest and Molly, because it is a love story, twisted as it is, and yeah. unexpected Extremely at twisted. every turn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she's no dummy. No. She's no dummy, but I think part of that is that she's just, she wants to believe. That you know, he, he loves her. I mean. But I think he does. I think he, he does. I think, I think he does, too. He's just, it's a, it's a very, very perverted love story. It's, uh, I mean, I mean, that's, to us, that's not love, the things that he does. But, but the th- some, he somehow separates the ambition, the greed to get the head rights and get all that money, and he sees, he sort of agrees with the uncle, like, yeah, well, you know, he these the sisters, and and now and and like his, I guess you could call it almost disdain for Bill Smith, oh, because oh, he sees yeah. himself, because he's basically doing the same thing that he's doing, but he believes, no, I'm really, I I'm with her because I love her. You wouldn't be calling me a squaw man, would yeah. you? Bill? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd I, I never call anybody that. No, a great, and I love the fact that in the beginning, I had forgotten about this scene, you know, when they're sitting at her dining room table, and she says to him, you base, you want to marry me, the money is an attractive thing, isn't it? Yeah, she, yeah, she, and, oh, yeah, and, she knows, and she's aware. And he says, yes. Yeah. You know, you think he's going to say, oh, no, 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 it's not about that. I love you for who you are. No, he's like, yeah, that's part of it. Yes. Yeah. He wants, and, well, and she says to her sisters, no, he wants to be settled. Well, yeah. maybe that's what he's learned from, from Hale, from his uncle, that ability to sort of carry both those halves, you know, which yeah. is genius or sociopathy or I'm not really yeah. sure what. But yeah. he genuinely loves her and he genuinely is cognizant and aware of all the horror he is committing himself and yeah. arranging to be committed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, 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 there was one, one line in The Irishman, that one flicker of self-awareness that I just loved when we talked about The Irishman back in episode 17, when at the end he's talking to his, his a questioner and says, how does a man make that kind of a phone call like that? Yeah. Talking about the phone call to yeah. office. To me, that moment in this film is after he's changed his mind again and is, has testified against yeah. his uncle and sent him away and blah, blah, and he says to her, I feel so clean now, I have a clean soul. And she just looks him straight in the eye and says, what did you give me? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah because by then she knows there was something in there. She's been in the hospital for a while. The doctors figured everything out. Right. I mean, just the matter of factness of it. What did you give? That's nice that your soul is all clean. What did you give me? Yeah. You know, and he insulin. Oh, insulin. Yeah, <laughs> just insulin. What are you What are you talking about? Yeah. And that one moment of self awareness for me with uh, with Ernest comes when he takes a little drink of what he's giving yeah. her mm-hmm. yeah. himself. That was a very powerful moment. That was the one moment where he sort of acknowledged that he, you know, that what he's doing is evil and needs to be punished somehow. But it was just one small moment. See, I yeah. thought the I thought the whole film was powerful. I mean, oh moments. yeah! I mean, moment after moment, and yeah. and um, I feel that way. The more I see it, I, I, I feel the, the experience is actually richer. As yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. But don't. But you know, you have. If you look back through Scorsese's career, you have, you know, everybody from from Travis Bickle to Rupert Pupkin to Jake LaMotta to Jordan Belford in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Again, it's for me. It's the Irishman problem. Again, we have someone who is sort of a cipher at the heart of this film. I, I, I agree with you when you talked about the Irishman, but I don't know if I agree with the with the Caprio. I mean, I was. What's his motivation, though? Why is he doing this? He says greed. I mean, which he, everyone calls Jew greed in the uh, oh, in the film several times. Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I just love money. Yeah, but he doesn't. <laughs> I know. He doesn't seem to be enjoying it. We don't seem to yeah, be. I, I mean, for Hale, it's the money. It's also the power. But I don't understand. Well, it seems like for, for him, I mean, he has to keep going. For Hale, I mean, he, he, he yeah, goes into hysterics when he can't uh, cash in on that insurance policy. Yeah, yeah. And then he burns. Yeah. And then he burns down his farm. Yeah, because he had just taken out an the insurance thirty thousand dollar policy. policy. Yeah, watch yep. the screen, Ira. Yeah. <laughs> Inside joke, people. Yeah, but um. So you. I, I think some some of it too is like. You lie about something. And then you lie to cover up the lie, and, and then just, you lie again to cover up the other lies, and you keep doing that till eventually you deluded yourself and that you're telling the truth. Yeah, I, or, or that somehow what you're that you're leading a, a righteous life. But it didn't. So it didn't bother you that we know very little more about his motivations for what he does and doesn't do at the end, three and a half hours later, than we did at the beginning. Uh, I, I would have liked would have. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you that, yeah, I would have liked a little bit more, I don't know, information is the wrong word. Um, you get that from the book at all? No, and, no. and you know... Because remember the book, too, is much more from the perspective, the well, mm-hmm. from the, the bureau. investigation yeah. and the bureau. Yeah, and how the, I intend to yeah, read the book. Yeah, yeah I it's, mean, it's what made Hoover's name. It's what put yeah, him on the map. Yeah, which is why we have the scene at the end because he then, the FBI then used this whole thing as a marketing tool. Right. And, and they, they really did have a radio program. Um, yeah, I, yeah. That, well, that's um, just an interesting I mean, thing. some of the motivation, too, is that for whatever reasons, he wants to please his uncle. Yeah. And his uncle is a very powerful force over him. He wants to please him. So uh, is, but is it fear? Is he afraid that if he doesn't please Hale, that something bad is going to happen to him? Or so? It, it's well, after fear he does him? some of those things, though, if he doesn't follow through, something bad will happen. Everything will be discovered, and he'll go to prison. 
I mean, so that's, that's part of the motivation. Some of it's want. almost comic, you know. Yeah, when, I John, know. when John shoots Henry in the back of the head and takes the gun, and that, and that, there's a back in the front. There's, there's a the moment. Back in the front. That, yeah, there's a moment before <laughs> that too when he approaches him about it that keeps sticking in my mind. He says, and and the character says, said I I didn't sign on for that kind of work. Well, it's an Indian. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that yeah. and that line going and that, back to your and that right. just says says, says it all. It all. Really. Yeah. you'll have an easier job convicting a man of kicking a dog than you will killing yeah. an Indian. That's yeah. the line. I mean, yeah. that's the line that stays with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I didn't have any problem with uh, DiCaprio's character, where I could see where you would with the Nero's in the Irishman. Yeah. Because that was more of a. But like De Niro's character, well, the also Irishman, remember, he just remember kinda... too that many people have said that you know it's based on that book that that guy wrote, and a lot of Painting people said he's yeah. just, a lot of people have said he just it's just some of his lot is made up. Right. No, but like De Niro's character in the Irishman, he just kind of follows yeah. follows orders. Yeah, he does not much. Where does he think for himself? Except when finally his baby dies, we don't know if that was legitimate or not, and you know that finally pushes him over the edge. And oh, you mean in, in the case of. Um, uh, of this one, yeah, yeah, uh, and at the end he's going to testify. I, f- I felt that there was a, a a big hole in the center, and that that scene too that was so interesting because you had the the Nero kind of Bill Hale who says he's with the angels now and he's praying, but I believe he's completely sincere. Yep, but that's the, well, that's and, the and genius that's, of De Niro. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's it's just mind-boggling that someone like you said can hold these these two things in their head at the same time. And again, and, it's, and, and someone say that's genius. It's either genius or sociopathy. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell or the same thing. I don't. I don't know. But um, I. I mean, so we know he's a World War One veteran, but yeah. you and know, he was, but he was a cook, right? And yeah. he dispels that right away. You know, as though it's some kind of trauma that he experienced. He says, "I saw more people die of the flu, flu yeah. than I did of you know of wounds." Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, and then the, the uncle, what does he do? He tries to praise him. He's like, but you kept the troop, the troops fed that won the war. You know, it's like he's praising him. He's building him up because he wants to use him. Yeah. I mean that is all people, and and yet and yet De Niro is so good oh that God. you genuinely feel that he really, at least in his heart of hearts, believes that he loves the Osage, and that he is yeah. shocked yeah. at the end in that scene knows, when Ernest says he's going to testify, and yeah. Ernest says the Osage are not going to be with you. They're not going to be with you. Yeah. And he, yeah, they're all going to be gone. They're all going to die off soon. Right. And he says, "No, you're wrong. They will, and people will forget." And that's one of the reasons I love the last scene, the radio show that takes place 15 years later. Oh, yeah. You know, when it just becomes another piece of trivial fodder for a true crime, you know, yeah. uh, radio show. And then having Scorsese. Read the, the uh, obituary. I oh, we, love But we it. get ahead of ourselves, fans. <laughs> we do. No, that's all right. No, it's mm. great. So, But that, just, what did you give me? That is the line that is going to, and then we never see them together again. We find out what happens. Yes, yeah. you know. But um, so, so, uh, I, I have to say, I I don't know if this is Scorsese's greatest movie, but I cannot think of another one that had so much impact on me emotionally. Me too. At, at the end, oh. at the end of it, the first time I watched it, I was just complete mess in tears. I'm glad I went to go see it by myself. Because and I, don't, and I don't know I don't know if it's some sort of part of that is my own personal experience of, of certain things that I saw in the movie that happened, but I just I, I'm really glad I saw it by myself because I was I was uncontrollably weeping at the end. 
Yeah. And, he, you know, and to watch her strength in the face of loss after loss oh after God. loss after loss, yeah. it's just unbearable. Yeah. And she bears up. Yeah. Uh, her, her strength is what moved me yeah. in, yep. in, in this film. Um, and, you know, it, you talk about the, the racism of it. It's not coincidental that Tulsa is mentioned twice. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and by the way, I, you know, I'm a fairly good student of history. I learned about Tulsa, um, HBO's adaptation of Watchmen. Mm -hmm. uh, that series that, with Regina King opens with Tulsa. And I was like, wait, did, 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 did this happen? And I went to Wikipedia and looked it up, and of course they call it the Tulsa race riot. Mean, you know, yeah. right. Oh, Meanwhile, yeah. they were yeah. they were dropping bombs on 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 Greenwood yeah. Avenue, and and you know just destroyed. <clears throat> and that in 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 some ways was even less explicit because the white folks in Tulsa didn't profit from it. They just could not stand yeah. to see black folks succeeding. Yeah. The murders in Killers of the Flower Moon were done for personal. Greed and gain, yeah. Um, yeah. but and and when when uh, re, when the sister's house is bombed, oh. you know she says, "This is Tulsa. This is Tulsa. It's bad enough." To and the fact that everybody knew about it, you had the doctor's wife, who you know they subletted that house, and she and she said, "Get get stuff, get, get all the uh, get the valuable stuff valuables out of, that. Out of yep. there." Yep. Yeah. It was like. <laughs> God, everybody's in on it. Yeah, and again, yeah. the matter. But of also that that part with the with the bombing is kind of interesting, like because when you see the character Ernest going over there, it's like, oh, I didn't. You had this this feeling from right. his face and everything, his reaction, like, oh, I didn't realize this is what they were gonna do. Like, yeah. it's gonna be this bad kind of thing. It's like, what although, did you think was gonna happen? You dumbass. He did, he did warn his wife. He did say, "I don't really want you being over there." Yeah, don't and don't right. go. Yeah, don't. Yeah, and don't go outside. Keep the kids inside. He knew something was gonna happen, but and and that moment. And then then, then the next day they you know haphazard. Hmm, guess he used too much too much, dynamite. Too much dynamite. Yep. And then that moment where they find the sister's body and she's sort of lying in what looks like a restful repose. Yeah. And then they pick her up and the and entire back of her head, head is blown pumps. off. Yeah. And that's the way, but from a distance. It's not gory, yeah. it's not no, graphic. Yeah. It's a very new kind of way to treat. I mean, the only, the only film I think Scorsese's done that tries to, you know, chew that much history is Gangs of New York. I mean, mm -hmm. and this, yeah. and yeah. you know, which is about racism in its own way. And, and I think this is a much, much oh, better movie than well, Gangs, yeah. of, Gangs New of New York. Gangs of New York was laughable at points. Yeah, I, I, mean, I uh, wasn't a fan. No. Yeah, it was a very, very ambitious movie. It was one of those movies I really, I kept wanting. I hope this was, I, hope, I wish this was better. I wish this was better. Because the subject matter was so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, well, uh, you know, let's not go into Cameron Diaz and some of the casting. Oh, that was odd. Quest. That it's, was just plain odd. And it's one of the few Daniel Day-Lewis performances that I think is a little bit over the top. I agree. Build yeah. the butcher. <laughs> <laughs> With his knives? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so then let me raise one more one more point is that that we talked about before we started is that people not just me to quote the Irishman people not just me no, have um, have said that the in this film while it is ostensibly about the Osage and tells their story that we learn precious little about their culture you know we see yeah. we see uh, a baby naming we see a wedding we see a couple of funerals but 
essentially, you could argue, I don't know if I believe this fully, that the film, that in this film, the Osage are just lining up as victims, ready to be knocked off one by one. And we don't really get to see, again, it's not an anthropology documentary. It's not yeah. the purpose of the film. But, well, but that, that bothered me a little bit. Yeah, well, you do have that, that scene in the tent when the meeting, and he's talking about, you know, in the old days, we would have we would confront our enemies and we'd kill them. And he's like, we don't... Who oh, and I love that he's a boxer rebellion vet. Yeah. You know, we knew who the enemy was. Yeah. And it killed yeah. Them. Right, yeah. now they're just... Yeah, wait, we don't know who they are, or who's, you know, who's next, where they're coming from. You know, it's like, I don't know who to go after kind of thing. And I, I love the fact that we see Lily, you know, who as possibly her last act, she thinks, gets to Washington gets to yeah. meet President Coolidge yeah. and, and, you know, come the murdering Osage. Silent Cow. Right, and we think, oh, what a noble thing Coolidge did. And then we find out that they gave the government $20,000 to do to, to yeah. that. That's yeah. the only way they could get any yeah. kind of justice, but at least they finally yeah. get some justice. Yeah. Um, so did you, how did, what did you guys think about the portrayal of the Osage in the film? I, I think it's mostly, mostly positive, but yeah. I think, but I, I, I would have liked to have seen more. I think, but I think they're objectified. I don't know if they're necessarily mm. positive or negative. I think mm. they're just they're they're set up as you know mm. as as people just waiting around to be killed. I mean, we have the meetings and they're trying to fight. They hire a prior detective well, and uh, let's remember they're on a reservation. They weren't really allowed to. I mean, they can only do so much, and and they don't have. And remember, whenever they want the money, they've got to go to their guardian right to get money. But it's sort of like they're constantly babysat. But he, but they are. There's so much more than that, and Scorsese emph, em, emphasizes that with the very yeah. last shot of the film. You know, yeah. with what my wife yeah. called the Schindler's List shot. Remember, Schindler's List ends yeah. ends with the Jews. You know, with Schind the Schindler survivors visiting yeah. his grave yeah. in modern day and putting yeah. stones on his grave as yeah. is the tradition. You know, and here we get the last shot is the celebration of the Osage and that incredible you know bird's eye shot. Oh but, my God! Right? But I wanted more. You of wanted that. more? I wanted yeah. To well, it's another reason why I think I would have liked to have seen the miniseries. I wanted more of everything. I wanted everything fleshed out more. I wanted to learn, I, like you, I wanted to learn more about the OSA. But I don't think that's to criticize what's in the three and a half hour movie. I mean, is there anything you would have cut? I don't think, oh, I mean, the three and a half hours passed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't, I've seen, saw it twice. I did not feel the time yeah. pass at all. So. Yeah. I mean, it does try to sort of get you to learn more with that book. The book, yeah. Which was very smart, but at the same time, it was completely believable that Bill Hale would hand him that book. They want you to learn, you know, more mm -hmm. about this. And I love the fact that so much of the dialogue is in Osage yeah. and untranslated. Scorsese yeah. said that um, here's someone who's older who's learned a new language because uh, De Niro worked with the language coach, and he apparently they said he was amazing and learned all the appropriate gestures. He said they had, did everything perfectly. <laughs> he was so excited, he went to Scorsese, let's do the whole movie in Osage. <laughs> it's like, oh, Bob, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate the enthusiasm, but... No, and I'll tell you what I would, uh, another thing I would have wanted more of. I, when have you ever in film seen shots of that, that montage at the beginning where the Osage are golfing and the white folks are caddies, yeah. and the yeah. Uh, yeah. and the and the Osage are driving these are, are have these amazing cars, mm -hmm. and the white folks the are driving Arras. them. The yeah, the Pierce Arrows. I would love to have seen a little bit more of that. As uh, not that you need any rationalization or need to understand it, but 
to really feel, you know, the resentment that was that was building up in yeah. addition to that, the greed. That's a good word to say, resent. That, yeah, because oh, like when the um, the Barry Corbin characters, when you ever see one of these Osage, you know, they don't work. You, there's, you could see like the real resentment. Is, oh, sure. I, you know, I work for a living. Right, and you know, as opposed to all the people who've inherited wealth, yeah, <laughs> you know, all the white exactly. folks who've inherited wealth. Yeah. But those were shots that I had never seen anything like. In, um, I keep mentioning Atlanta, I apologize, Donald Glover's series Atlanta, there are a couple of episodes that sort of do that, that do the flip. Um, but um, I would really have liked to have seen a little bit more of that, because it was something I've never seen before yeah. on screen. Yeah, and then they also use some of that too, when she's naming it certain people, they feel no investigation. You have like the, the yep. football player. No investigation. You know, the, 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 the pilot. I gotta be um, honest. You just talking about it makes me want to go right out and see it again. <laughs> no, I'm not listening. <laughs> I, uh, it, yeah. It's it's definitely you know among my top. But that was I, actually, but that I was really like kind of a brilliant idea the way he did that, so that and someone who's not aware of all the history, you felt grounded in that. Not a enough, little. Uh, not, you wanted more, yeah. Wanted well, more. just because it was so interesting and rich. Well, I knew it because I'd read Grant's book. Yeah. 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 Well, I certainly didn't know it beforehand. I mean, mm. when that guy was like, wait, this, ha what? It was like the same thing with Tulsa, well, you know, which was the same same area right around the same year. Right. It's like, wait, this right. actually happened? I kind of wish now I had read the book beforehand. I have the book. I just haven't read it yet, but I will. Yeah. So any other thoughts just on the, uh, on the film, you know, itself? You... you Pure joy all the way through. Four times, Michael. Wow. I know. Isn't that weird? No, no not, not at all. No, it's not weird. <laughs> this is Martin Scorsese we're talking about. No, it's not yeah, weird. Well, I remember when um, Goodfellas came out. I remember seeing that several times when it came out. I did out. too when it came yeah. out. Um, I, I just think, except for the little bit with uh, Mr. Um, Fraser. Fraser, I think it's, a, for me, as what is seen on the screen, I think it is perfect. So let's just talk about the ending. It, this, it's not a spoiler alert because the ending doesn't reveal anything new. The ending, we, we jump about 15 years into the future to that radio show, you know, with a little orchestra and the, and the cheesy sound effects, a true crime thing, which, yeah. as you say, actually, you know, was sponsored by the FBI. Which I, when I saw the film the first time, I did not know that. It, was, it, it, it took me by surprise, but I liked it. It, almost like, it was almost a bit of a relief from all the... You know, heaviness, and it yeah. sort of nicely wrapped everything up. Mm -hmm. And as you say, my in that moment, uh, Scorsese himself plays the narrator. Who yeah, reads, I really loved that. Reads Molly's uh, obituary. She dies of her diabetes. You know, some like ten, twelve years after the action of the film ends. And I love the fact that Ernest comes back. And we've learned that he ends up living with Byron on a trailer, in a trailer park on the outskirts of he town. He was pardoned by the governor of Oklahoma because mm -hmm. he because actually the deal kind of I, I don't know it all looked the like details. the deal fell through. Yeah, because he, he went he went to prison and then years later the governor of Oklahoma pardoned him, which is bizarre. Yeah, and Hale, and they say Hale, and Hale got, got out for because, good behavior, yeah, well. good behavior, and kept and he was never supposed to never return. And did. But kept but did. doing it repeated yeah. times, and apparently the Osage wanted nothing to do with him, but he thought that he was, you know, loved by all of them. Yeah, he wrote them letters saying, <laughs> yeah. you know, return, can want to yeah. return to my true home. But I'm yeah. glad that it was done via the radio show instead of just white on black, and like, this is what happened. Which he could have done. And he could have easily done, and yeah. nobody would have faulted him for that. But 
putting it as in the radio show I thought was genius. No, yeah, and then I, part of the reason I really liked it is because you could see how it was completely inverted and used by the white man, mm -hmm. the FBI, to market itself, to promote yep. itself. Yep, and it just became just another, like, one of these true crime yeah. podcasts that are so, yeah. you know, a murder of the month kind of thing. Yeah. And it just, and, and Hale was right. Everyone's going to forget. It's going to become a piece of trivia, and that's exactly what it becomes. Yeah. And it took this book coming out four or five years ago to make people sit up and go, whoa. I mean, yeah. you, you know, we know that we've had bad relationships with indigenous people, but we never heard of this. Did you ever learn about this? No. In history uh, class? I heard about no. it. Oh, no. No, God, no. 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 Please. In, in history class in the late 50s and early 60s? Yeah, Are you no. kidding me? Yeah. Okay. No. And talking, now we you, learned about manifest destiny. If you, if you <laughs> meaning try... That it, meaning that, that, that God imbued us with this power to go commit genocide. <laughs> yep. Take up the white man's burden and all that jazz. Yeah. As Kipling would say. But yeah, if I taught that, in, if I showed that in Florida, they, they'd kick me out of my oh teaching my job. Yeah. Because it's, sure. it's anti-American. I mean, you could, you could kind of say that um, this is sort of an example, sort of a, almost a metaphor for everything else that happened. Exactly. And that's as far as far as like removing the Native Americans from from their land and how we kept expanding and just and the, the constant exploitation of them and treating them as that they were the subhuman child race yeah yeah which is what they're called yeah. several times so and, and and that's a nice lead into you know because when one thinks of Scorsese one often thinks of moments of extreme violence shot in a very auteurist a very a, a style that very much calls attention to itself yeah like the end of Taxi Driver or the boxing scenes in Raging Bull etc yeah. etc et or you know any number of scenes in Goodfellas so um, where do you put this can can you connect this to to the rest of Scorsese's work, or is this sort of an outlier? And you know, for lack of a better word, how would you sort of rank it among Michael? I know how you feel about this. Number one. Why so? I I because I've never been so moved by hmm. a Scorsese movie as I was by this one. Not even The Age of Innocence, which of course I knew what was going to happen. Right, and that's Wharton too. That's yeah, not, <laughs> that's not just. But yes, I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, reaching for the heart mm -hmm. is not a Scorsese thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, for instance. Um, well, yeah, because he usually centers on characters that you want nothing to do with. Raging Bull is a wonderful example. I saw it when it first came out. I was initially sort of disappointed because I thought, oh, these are horrible people, but it's well done. Fifteen years later, I see it again. The sick feel is okay. I know what everyone's saying now. It really is really, truly magnificent. Saw it last year at the film forum. They, they brought it back. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this really is a great movie. I never want to see it again. And I really don't. Yeah, because of the people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel this way about this film. I, I would say that the only film that he's done that came, which is ironic as the one Jewish member of this group, was I found Last Temptation of Christ phenomenally moving. Yeah. And his to see a Jesus who is wrestling with his divine and human side. Right. And ultimately, right. in, in mm -hmm. the utmost... And shows fear. Right. 
and in the utmost agony that a human can endure triumphs over the temptation mm -hmm. that Satan places before him. To me, I, I, I found, if I, I said, if I, if I were a priest or something, I would, and everyone, of course, all the Catholics were protesting against it, like Zeffirelli well, and those guys. Which you never guys. really understood. I Zeffirelli, just, who never saw it. Right, of course. Which, which really continues no. to piss me off. <laughs> you know, when I, when I first saw, because I saw that with you. That's right. I remember, and people were protesting, there was people inside the theater handing out stuff, and and I forget what the, the guy said to me as I was going into the theater, and I said, Jesus would see the movie first. Yes! <laughs> Zing! Whenever I see people protesting, they admit they hadn't seen it, I, I always ask, are there any other films you haven't seen that you could recommend? Yeah, well, I mean, don't don't get the English teacher started on people trying to ban books who haven't even come oh close God. to reading them. Oh so that, that's that, another thing. That's a whole other thing. So I have to say, I don't think the MAGA people would like this film. And if we have any MAGA people who are listening to this, don't doubt it. Don't, oh, yeah. Of course not. It will make them. It might make turn them us feel, off. Turn might, us off. It might right? make them feel guilty. Yeah. I doubt no, it. Oh, that you feel bad about themselves. Oh yeah. Oh no, we can't have that. Yeah. We don't. We want. We want to feel good about themselves. So yeah. I mean. That and my God, you mean there's intermarriage? So I know there's that line the mother has: "Is you all marry white men?" Yeah, ex exactly. Oh, God, I love the mother, and the scene with the owl. Her and the owl. Twice. Oh, I love. Oh! Yeah, well, I love the part when when they're. You know, Lily's being poisoned, mm -hmm. and she sees the owl, yeah. and then there's a pause, and you hear footsteps coming, and it's Ernest that walks in. Yeah. Are you real? Yeah. She says, are you yeah. real? Which is something she says a couple of times in yeah. her in her delirium. So yeah. this is about violence, too, but it's, except maybe for Gangs of New York, it's about violence on a race-wide, nationwide yeah. scale. And I love, love, love the fact that, as we said, there are no set pieces here. You know, Scorsese is a lot of set pieces, especially when it comes to the violence. But this, it's just matter of fact, mid-shot, not yeah. even close-ups. And I think, I think in some ways this is maybe, you know, he's telling us that the violence we've seen the gangsters perpetrate, you know, from mean streets all the way through, is... is child's play it's nothing yeah. compared to what this country's done since the europeans got here you know uh, uh, four, 500, 400 years ago 500 years ago yeah i want to add one i agree i want to yeah. add one thing i find it hard to believe that scorsese's 80 because we remember when we were talking about the irishman i would say right this is an old man's movie not cutting it down this is not an old man's movie yeah this this could have been made by a 30 year old yeah, no. maybe he's doing a John Huston on us. Yeah. Or Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Who knows? I, I, mean, I would love that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wonder if he's going to make another movie. I, I don't see why not. As soon as he you know, finds some other subject to... Yeah, he's got the energy. God love him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know... I mean, you've seen him in interviews, and he's... He's fine. I mean, he's, really, mm -hmm. he's very lively, very sharp. I mean, boy... He's and gonna... you know, I was thinking that 50 years ago, if you bet on which of the Hollywood new waivers was going to become the granddaddy of American cinema, Scorsese would not have been at the top of no. the list. You no. would have said Coppola, maybe, or even yeah. Lucas after American Graffiti. <laughs> or, um, but yeah, it's it's so interesting yeah, that he's done just, that. I don't know. He's kind of burned out. Yeah, he likes his his uh, wine fields. Did Great you? Fields. <laughs> 
the the I didn't notice too many. I mean, there are always influences. He was talking about how he was influenced again. Film that I went to see on YouTube because I'd never seen it. Thomas Ince, you know, who you know mm-hmm. in the mid-teens was the equal of D.W. Griffith, and then yeah. died mysteriously in 1916. Did a right. film called The Last of the Line, which he shot on location. It's about a 20-minute film mm-hmm. with you know with a very similar kind of story about the interaction between indigenous peoples and white folks. I, I saw some Malik here. I mean, the fire, the insurance fire scene looked yeah. like straight out of Days of mm-hmm. Heaven. Yeah. Did you guys notice any other any other film? Well, I, I noticed. I know that that um, Scorsese is a big fan of The Searchers. Yes. So I know that's a big influence on him, and I know in interviews he said, you know, I've, I've always loved westerns as a genre, but this is sort of like an anti-western. I mean, people keep referring to it as a western, but it's a western that's no. Right, no, it's it's, it's, there, trying, it's trying to put things right, kind of. Thing. I have to say, there were shots of Lily Gladstone, which made reminded me of Olivia de Havilland in the era. In the era, yes, yes. yes. there yes. it is. Yes. And, and Scorsese has actually oh, he said, loves that. Yeah. Oh yeah, he and, loves it. Yeah. And the whole idea of him, you know, wanting to marry her for the money, mm-hmm. and whether that's true. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of there's a lot of shots. Yeah, where the way their hair is yep. pulled back yes, and everything. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. Very, very much paying tribute. And I love. You should remind me. I love that line when he's. Uh, the cab is talking about her skin. So, what color would you call it? He says, "My color." My, my color. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that opening when Henry's driving, uh, driving Ernest out there. Whose land is this? It's my land. Yeah. It's my land. Yeah. And wow. Yeah. So yeah, the Henry Roan character, who Bill Hale uh, considers his best friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You shoot him in the front, not in the back. <laughs> yeah, front, back, front, back. What's the matter with you? So and then I, the guy know, comes and gives him the gun. You know, the more I think about it, I don't even know if you can, if this is comparable to other Scorseses. I mean, we're not going to like rank our Scorsese films. No, here, no, 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 no. But but will go on for another two hours. Right. No, no. But this is like this is sort of almost a separate thing. Yeah, That's, it's almost it's almost as if he's gone he's gone through an involvement. Yeah. I mean, as in, a person to make this movie. In recent films like Wolf of Wall Street, we say, okay, we've seen the elements like this before in this film, this film, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even The Irishman is sort of a summation a bit, of, yeah. you know, of some yeah. of, you know, you could say, oh, this is from this and this is from that and this is that. But this, there's just, except, again, I'm not, the last time I'm going to mention Gangs of New York, I swear, which is a very poor attempt to do something, but just he's never attempted anything on the scale. Yeah. And, you know, but it's something he's been wanting to do for a long time. And he said that when he was much younger, he did have an inter- interaction with, with the Osage. He didn't know anything about them. He was lear- So it's something that's been sort of brewing inside him for decades. And it is, uh, it's an unbelievably, unbelievable true story. And yeah. it is, uh, he did a brilliant job, I thought, in the telling. So I think in the end... I don't think it's even comparable to other Scorsese's work. I think it sort of has to be taken on its own. And yes, maybe it is kind of maturity, guys. Maybe you're right about that. Uh, maturity, but as I, I still find it hard to believe that this was directed by an 80-year-old man. It's like I felt the way about Put Honor and John Huston. It just doesn't seem possible. You know, I... I, you know, it's not a Scorsese film. It's it's you know Coppola's Godfather, where the opening line is, "I believe in America." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're believing in. 
<laughs> we're believing in the people who perpetrated these crimes against these people well, and, and for in the godfather that the, it's the immigrant saying because he's he's believing in the opportunity to make a life for himself and his family that's what he's saying and i think scorsese yeah. is saying here that many uncountable times in our history as a nation that opportunity has come at the expense of yes of people of darker skin yeah oh yeah Sorry, just get all sixteen nineteen project on you there. No, yeah, no, 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 no. You're exactly right. I mean, because one of the things I thought about because because the whole idea of you've got all these white men who are marrying the the Osage women because they want their money. It, it, it's these perverse relationships. But at the same time, I mean, why are we so surprised? It's like slave owners would go and have sex with their slaves as if, well, you know, why not? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's what you're there for is, is for, you know, to please me. If, you know, ta Coates says in Between the World and Me that if you scratch under any fortune in this country, yeah. you will find the bones and the blood of people of color, whether it's taking their land or exploiting their labor yeah. or whatever it is. And I love the fact that Scorsese expands his view from, you know, one gang fighting another or the gang wars of, you know, whatever it is. To say, I mean, uh, this is this is too big a generalization. That there's something about us that we are a gangster nation, that we have gotten what we've wanted by taking it by force and by exploiting. Well, yeah, groups of people, and that's uh, that's a that's a pretty major statement. So I'm not going to even try. I think in the end to compare this to his other films. I think it is a, it is a thing unto itself and a wonderful thing unto itself. So. Yeah. If you haven't seen yeah. it yet, and if you're listening to this, I'm probably pretty sure you have. But um, please, please see this movie. It's now available to rent for you know twenty bucks on uh, on Amazon. And, and I think Apple. it'll be it's gonna, Apple. It's going to be on Apple in right. at the end of the really any day now. Yeah, it is really, 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 really worth seeing on a big screen though, if you still can. If yes. it's still playing oh, anywhere yeah. near it's, you. They've pulled it from a lot of theaters. Yeah, it's right now it's only at the Empire, AMC, and I think the Quad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. You might, uh, might as well see it on TV. Just thinking about the Quad makes my feet stick to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> have you been there lately, though? They have really... They have really re... They have redone it okay. Redone it, yes. I don't think they had any choice because people <laughs> would walk in and never come... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never people come out their again. feet would stick to the floor and they just couldn't get them out of there no matter what. So... Um, that uh, just a, a one-of-a-kind film from a one-of-a-kind director. So unfortunately, because the last time we convened was about six weeks ago, so I, I've, we probably have a fairly long necrology, so. including Sadly. one of my favorite actors in the world who just passed away a couple of days ago. That would be Andre Brower. But that's oh, I thought you meant Ryan O'Neill. Uh, no, definitely not Ryan. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, we lost Mr. O'Neill. But so, Mike, I turn the mic to you. Okay, in I believe in order of their. Um, passings. We start with Piper Laurie, mm. 91, screen, stage, and television actress who received three Oscar nominations spanning three decades. Yeah. She was under contract to Universal in the 1950s, playing mostly ingenue roles. Her film debut was in Louisa, where she played Ronald Reagan's daughter, and she later said in her memoir that she dated him and lost her virginity to him. No. Yeah. The conservative takeover. <laughs> Among her 16 films for Universal were Son of Alibaba, No Room for the Groom, 
Has anybody seen my gal? Nope. And Francis goes to the races. But she became bored with the roles. I admit I have seen that. Really? Yeah. No kidding. As a kid. As a kid. Okay. It was on TV. Was it, was we it don't any, judge. Was it any, Francis Sand? the Talking Mule. Was it any good? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> anyway, she became bored with the role she was offered. I wonder why. So she broke her contract and moved to New York to try to work on stage. But she really wasn't cast in anything substantial. Then she started working in television, where she was taken under the wing of John Frankenheimer, who mm. directed her in the original TV production of Days of Wine and Roses, opposite Cliff Robertson. Interesting. Then she was cast as Paul Newman's disabled girlfriend in The Hustler, to great acclaim, receiving her first Academy Award nomination, this time for Best Actress, which she lost to Sophia Loren in Two Women. But then she said she was offered the same kind of roles as The Hustler, but they, weren't as, they were lesser scripts. So she appeared in a few guest roles on TV series and a TV series, and appeared on Broadway as Laura, opposite Maureen Stapleton in a revival of *The Glass Menagerie* to great acclaim. Then she left acting for ten years, totally, married, and moved to upstate New York, where she raised her children, did sculpting, and baked. One of her recipes was printed in the New York Times. Then she returned to acting, playing Sissy Spacek's insane demonic mother in Brian De Palma's Carrie. Joan Fontaine turned down that role, declaring the, the $10,000 pay was insulting. Laurie, though, received her second Oscar nomination, this time as Best Supporting Actress, losing to Beatrice Strait in Network. Mm. After that, she never stopped working. Her other 85 film and TV credits include Tim, Appointment with Death, Other People's Money, Storyville, Rich in Love, and Children of a Lesser God, receiving her final Oscar nomination as Best Supporting Actress. She worked extensively on television, winning an Emmy for Promise opposite James Garner, and won two Emmy nominations for portraying Catherine Martell, <laughs> the manipulative, ma manipulative businesswoman in Twin Peaks. <laughs> and, she, Twin Peaks. and she had, the, for my money, the most memorable funny line in Twin Peaks. And that's saying something. When that young lady was tied up, gagged, and a bomb was about to go off, and she walks in, and she gets really mad, and she goes, I can't understand a thing you're saying. You have a thing in your mouth. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I, I don't think I stopped laughing. <laughs> anyway, very interesting career. <coughs> Suzanne Summers, 76, TV and occasional film actress and exercise maven. She was best known for the sitcom Three's Company in the mid-1970s and was extremely popular. Her poster was on many male college students' dorm walls in the See, 70s. I like Joyce DeWitt. I thought Joyce DeWitt was pretty. Okay. That's my problem. <laughs> However, when she asked for a raise, in line with the salary that co-star John Ritter was making, she was unceremoniously unceremon fired. Other TV series she appeared in were She's the Sheriff and Step by Step. In film, she is best known for playing the blonde and the T-bird in American Graffiti. Yes, indeed. She also uh, played herself in several films, most notably in John Waters' Serial Mom. Right. That was pretty what? funny. Yes. I haven't seen that since it came out. Yeah, I like that movie. <laughs> she and her husband invented the Thighmaster, which she promoted. It became one of the most recognizable products in infomercial history. She also wrote more than 25 books, several of them bestsellers, mostly regarding, regarding the body and aging.
Okay. Keith Baxter, British actor, mm. stage director, and writer. Oh, from Chomps Appeared yeah. on Broadway, originating the roles of Milo Tyndall in Sleuth, opposite Anthony Quayle, and King Henry VIII in A Man for All Seasons, opposite Paul Schofield. He only made occasional film appearances, but the one he is best known for is Prince Hal in Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight in 1965, reprising his, the role he played for Welles on stage in Ireland. Baxter wrote about the experience in the publication Wellsnet. Huh. We arrived in a ruined church in Andoria early in the morning and broke for lunch outdoors when Wells and John Gilgood swapped hilarious antidotes before Wells, Wells climbed on the table and fell asleep. When he woke, we filmed until it was dark. One actor, newly arrived from England, complained that these were not the trade union hours, and everybody looked at him as if he were insane. <laughs> now, Keith Baxter was originally cast in an early version of The Other Side of the Wind, then called The Sacred Beast. It was a very different story about a macho film director playing dangerous physical and psychological games during filming with his star, Anth with his star played by Anthony Perkins, and his possible replacement, played by Aurelio Nines, an actual bullfighter. Baxter was to play the screenwriter, but funding fell through so The Sacred Beast was never made, and Baxter made clear he was not a fan of The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah, well, neither will we. Check out episode seven. Oh, yeah. Burt Young, 83. Film, TV, and stage actor. Originally a Marine, he entered at the age of 16, and then a boxer from Queens. He studied with Lee Strasberg, who called him a library of emotions. He had small roles in the early 70s in films such as The Gang He Couldn't Shoot Straight, The Killer Elite, Cinderella Liberty, and most notably, Chinatown. Yeah. But when he played Sis Mr. Sis Sylvester <laughs> Stallone's brother-in-law, Paulie, in Rocky, that was the role that put him on the map, winning him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, which he lost to Jason Robards in All the President's Men. Now, Young claimed he was the only actor in the movie who didn't have to audition and made the highest salary, which I find a little I hard to believe. Little believe. Yeah, well, he reprised the role for 30 years in Rocky II, III, IV, V, and Rocky Balboa. Other films include Uncle Joe Shannon, which he also wrote, Once Upon a Time in America, The Pope of Greenwich Village, Back to School, Over the Brooklyn Bridge, Betsy's Wedding, Mickey Blue Eyes, and TV shows, such as Law and Order, The Sopranos, Columbo, and Russian Doll. All in all, he had 166 right. film and TV credits. He also appeared on stage, most notably opposite Robert De Niro in Cuba and the Teddy Bear. Vincent Patrick, 88, novelist and screenwriter. His first novel, The Pope of Greenwich Village, was published when Patrick was 44. He wrote the screenplay for the film, which was directed by Stuart Rosenberg, and starred Mickey Rourke and Eric Roberts. He also wrote the book Family Business, which he also wrote the screenplay, and that was directed by Sidney Lumet, and starred Sean Connery, Dustin Hoffman, and Matthew Broderick. He also contributed to the script for The Devil's Own with Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt, and two TV, uh, TV movies, To Serve and Protect, and, no, the two-part TV movie, To Serve and Protect. He also worked on early scripts for Beverly Hills Cop, and The Godfather 3, but both projects ended up in other hands. Joanna Merlin, 92, actress, teaching, and casting director. 
In films, she's most known for her role as Miss Berg, the strict dance instructor in fame. Oh, right. Other films include her debut in DeMille's The Ten Commandments, Hester Street, All That Jazz, Baby It's You, The Killing Fields, and Mystic Pizza. She served as casting director for The Year of the Dragon, Big Trouble in Little China, The Last Emperor, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, The Lover, and Jefferson in Paris. On stage, she originated the role of Teasel in the original production of Fiddler on the Roof. Mm. She was also the casting director on Broadway, working for Harold Prince on Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, and Merrily We Roll Along. She taught graduate acting at NYU. Richard Roundtree, oh. 81, actor who redefined African-American masculinity when in 1971 he played the title role of Shaft, his film bad debut. Mother, shut your mouth. <laughs> the first of the so-called black, black, black exploitation films. For better or worse, he was thought of as the first black James Bond. As a private eye, Shaft took no prisoners. This is someone you didn't want to mess with. He appeared in two sequels, Shaft's Big Score Shaft and Africa. Shaft in Africa, which was a bomb. But it led to him to be in the TV uh, CBS Shaft series, but they only shot seven episodes. The black film critic of Essence magazine said, Shaft was the first picture to show a black man who leads a life free from racial torment. <laughs> Other film credits include Earthquake, City Heat, Georgia the Jungle, Seven, A Time to Die, The Big Score, and most recently this year, as Jane Fonda's former husband in Moving On. Oh. And I thought he was quite lovely in that. Yeah. I, I was always like, liked him. Yeah. yeah. And I hadn't seen him in a while, and I thought, oh, you're really good in this. Yeah. You know, it's just... Anyway. Matthew Perry, 54, comedic actor, known for his role of Chandler Bing in Friends. The theatrical films include Fools Rush In, Almost Heroes, Three to Tango, Seventeen Again, and The Whole Nine, Nine yards, yards with yeah. Bruce Willis. There was also a sequel, The Whole Ten Yards. Clever. And, <laughs> which I, I only saw the, the, the Nine I yards. saw the Selma Hayek one. Yeah. Um, I think they spent 30 seconds thinking up that time. Yeah, yeah. No. And um, it's, it's odd, though. I've seen more actors in the last, like, month. And I don't mean the Friends co-stars. Just right. talk about him, how... Generous he was on the set. Uh, mm -hmm. Everybody from yeah. Zach Elfron to Sarah Paulson. Yeah. And, uh, and he had the, terrible struggles with addiction. Yeah, they the found through, out yeah. today what he died of. Right. It was a uh, ketamine. Ketamine, uh, yeah. reaction to ketamine. Anyway, John Bailey, 81, cinematographer and for two years the Academy president. Among his 86 films that he shot were American Gigolo, Ordinary People, Continental Divide, The Big Chill, The Pope of Greenwich Village. There it is again. <laughs> the Accidental Tourist, Groundhog's Day, Nobody's Fool, As Good As It Gets, and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Sure. He also directed five films, which he also photographed. The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe with Lily Tomlin. Sure. China Moon, Via Doloroso, NSYNC, Big, Bigger Than Life, and Mar Marriott in Ecstasy. He started out as a camera operator on Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Could do worse. He was never nominated for an Oscar, but helped others win. He tried to make his photography invisible. He served as president of the Academy from 2017 to 2019. 
During this time, there, were, there was controversy in the Academy when several members were expelled, including Harvey Weinstein, Roman Polanski, and Bill Cosby. Yeah. Elliot Silverstein, film and TV director, oh, sure. was known as the originator of the Bill of Creative Rights for Directors. It came about when he was frustrated after directing an episode of Twilight Zone, when the editor refused to cut the ending the way Silverstein preferred. At the time, there was nothing he could do about it. The director had no say in how the film was cut. I know that. It was the one with Burgess Meredith in The Future, The Obsolete Man. I remember that. He spearheaded a committee of the DGA, which wrote the, the Bill of Creative Rights. It included a provision for a director's cut, and now it is standard in contracts for directors. Silverstein only made six theatrical films, most notably A Man Called Horse with Richard Harris and his theatrical film debut, Cat Baloo, Cat Baloo. Uh -huh. which won five Oscar nominations and won Lee Marvin the Best Actor Oscar, one of the very few comedic performances to ever win a Best Actor Oscar. I can only think of two others, actually. James Stewart in Philadelphia Story and Richard Dreyfuss. Cause they, in uh, uh, Goodbye, Goodbye Girl? Girl. I yeah. cannot think of comedic actors who ever win Best Actor Oscars. It's, it's very rare. Yeah. Um, actually, Kirk Douglas was originally cast in that role, but he dropped out over script agreements. It was also Silverstein's idea to have a singing Greek chorus in the film, memorably sung by Nat King Cole yes. and Stubby K. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. I remember, though, feeling a little creepy about it, because uh, I was a fan of Nat King Cole, even as a 10-year-old, and he'd already died. Oh, by the time the film was yeah. released, he just died. Yeah, I saw it in the theater was. when it came yeah, out. Yeah, everybody. Thought was, I thought it was fun then. Oh yeah, yeah. and it is. It did kind of really put Jane Fonda on the map as a leading actress. I mean, she had done leading parts well, before, also, but yeah, this was her first hit. This was yeah. It was it was very different from other stuff yeah. she was doing. Yeah, she she was kind of got out in a rut. She was kind of doing that same thing over and over. Yeah. Joss Joss Acklin, ninety five, British TV film and stage actor. He appeared in 130 film movies, mostly supporting roles, including the Cold War thriller The Hunt for Red October, the hockey comedy The Mighty Ducks, he played a racist South African in Lethal Weapon 2, a terrorist in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and a cameo in the video Always on My Mind by the Pet Shop Boys. Huh. He was nominated for a British Academy Award in White Mischief as a man in a Kenya colony during World War II accused of murdering his wife's much younger lover. Did you ever see that? No. It's a good movie. Oh, wait, no, I did, but only when it yeah, came out. Yeah, with Sarah Miles and yeah, a lot I've of people. On stage in Great Britain, he was considered very versatile, playing roles such as Falstaff, Juan Perón in the original London cast of Evita, and playing opposite Gene Simmons in the original London production of A Little Night Music. Very mm -hmm. versatile actor. Frances Sternhagen, mm. 93, character actress of stage, film, and TV. Among her two dozen or so films include Up the Down Staircase, The Hospital, Fedora, Starting Over, Outland, Independence Day, Bright Lights, Big City, Doc Hollywood, and Julie and Julia. She won two Tony Awards as Best Supporting Actress in Neil Simon's The Good Doctor and The Heiress opposite Cherry Jones. On TV, she was known for playing Cliff Clavin's mother on Cheers right. and Charlotte's mother-in-law in Sex and the City, Bunny. Mm. I love that name, Bunny. 
I was just watching The Hospital the other night, and she has one of yeah. my favorite lines in that film. She plays the um, hospital administrator in the emergency room, and she's yelling at a corpse saying, you are not leaving this room until I get your Blue Cross number. <laughs> yeah, that's she's always, true. Always, she's always good, good actors, and another one who always played older. Yeah. She originated yeah. yes. the matriarch role in On Golden Pond on Broadway when she was 49. Oh. Yeah. It's work. Norman Lear, 101. A good life, though. Yes. Film and TV producer and writer. Known more for his breakthrough television programs such as On the Family, Maud, and the Jeffersons. For films, he produced the, the film version of Never Too Late with Paul Ford uh, in 1965 and apparently fought to have Ford play uh, that oh, role. Play he movie. had never played a leading role before or yeah. after. <laughs> and they wanted... He was uh, great in it. Well, of course. It, I mean, it was Paul Ford. He was yeah. great in everything. Yeah, but <laughs> this was a leading role and he played it on Broadway for two years and he really fought to have him in there. I yeah. think they were talking about Edward G. Robinson or Spencer Tracy playing that role and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But he was great in it. And then he produced and co-wrote the screenplay with Robert Kaufman for Divorce American Style in 1967. The film, which starred Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds, was a big hit and won Lear and Kaufman an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, which lost the Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I wasn't crazy about that movie. Everybody, Divorce uh, American Style? Divorce, yeah, I just thought... I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, Turner has it occasionally. And then, of course, the only film that Lear ever directed was Cold Turkey which in 1971, which was discussed yep. extensively in episode 30, Hidden Gems 2, My Choice. He was the founder of People for the American Way, which was an organization to battle the religious right. His autobiography was Even This I Get to Experience, which was published when he was 93. And I, I read that book. It was a gift for me in a secret Santa, and I was forever grateful because I loved the book. Mm -hmm. Apparently, he fought with Carol O'Connor a lot. Really? Yeah, yes. Carol O'Connor wanted to soften the character. Oh. Well, and of course he fought a lot with uh, the cast of Good Times after Tony yeah. Walker became such a, you know, then John mm -hmm. Amos and Esther Roll were feeling that it was a kind of a step and fetch it sort of thing. Yeah, well, I'm I, 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 I think in that case Lear was wrong. But uh, you, for the television, you just can't, you know. I loved Good Times. I mean, I was a little kid, but I loved Good Times. I, I did too when it was on, yeah. I loved All in the Family and I loved Maud. All in the Family was... I mean, yep. I still can remember the very first episode and watching that. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a very big deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, because nothing like that had ever been on ever. TV before. But the next day in school, everybody was trying to do that thing with the chair. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I remember the, the chair, yeah. Okay. Marissa Pavin, 91. Italian actress who came over to Hollywood in the early 1950s after her twin sister, Pierre Angeli. Oh, I didn't oh. know that they were twins. I didn't either. Was discovered by Victorio De Sica, and they both came to Hollywood. Pavin's screen debut was in John Ford's What, P what Price Glory with James Cagney. <clears throat> Other films in the 50s include Diane, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, King, Vidor King Vidor's Solomon and Sheba, Oof. The Western Drumbeat with Robert, Roderick Crawford, 
John Farrell's John Paul Jones with Robert Stack, and The Midnight Story with Tony Curtis. But she is best known for playing Anna Magnani's daughter in 1955's Rose Tattoo, sure. which brought her an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. In the 60s through the late 80s, she worked exclusively on American television, in TV movies, and in the soap opera Ryan's Hope. She retired in 1990. Her sister tragically died in 1971 from a barbiturate overdose mm. at the age of 39. It was never determined if it was a suicide. I did not know that. Ryan O'Neill, hmm. film and TV actor. He trained as a boxer before beginning his acting career on television. For a few years, he was a stand-in, uh, but received his big break in 1964 playing Rodney Carrington on the TV series Peyton Place, which he performed on its entire run. He had only made two theatrical films when he was chosen to play Oliver Barrett in the enormously successful Love Story, a role that John Voight and Bo Bridges had already turned down. Vintage sand means never having to say you're sorry, John. <laughs> and this was very odd. <laughs> <laughs> and this was, at the time, very unusual for um, a TV actor to get cast yes. in yeah. a major film. In those days, and that just didn't happen. Yeah. Ali McGraw, who had already... I mean, you could argue James Garner was really one of the one first. One of the very, that, yeah, yeah, first. Uh, Ali McGraw, who had already had the female part and was married to the film's producer, Roger, Robert always, Evans... That always helps. ...went to bat for O'Neill, and despite the fact that O'Neill was... Best known for television, he got the part and he won his only Oscar nomination for Best Actor, losing to George C. Scott in Patton. His next two films were also successful, What's, What's Up Doc, opposite Barbara Streisand, and Paper Moon, opposite his nine-year-old daughter, Tatum. Wonderful, Andy. Yes, Both, wonderful. He is very, very good in that. I love right? him yeah. in that. Both were directed by Peter Vogdanovich, who he would later shoot another movie, Nickelodeon, which wasn't as Not successful. So <laughs> Did you think it no, I, I never saw it. I've seen it. Yeah, is it bad? It has, it has, it's not bad. It has. It's just not as good as some of the others. It has some good moments. It's in better it. than at long last love. There, I said it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which he was. Which he was offered. Oh, God. Watching paint dry is better than mm -hmm. long last love. True. In 1975, he would film the lead in Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Wonderful. Which was a mixed critical success, but a financial failure. Other films include Wild Rovers, The Thief Who Came to Dinner, A Bridge Too Far, The Driver, The Main Event, Oliver's Story, a sequel to Love Story, mm -hmm. So Fine, Partners, and Irreconcilable Differences. On television, he did a sitcom called Good Sports with his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Farrah Fawcett. It only ran a year. He did have a reoccurring role on the TV drama Bones for several years. And he was also known for having very difficult relations with two of his three children, Tatum and Griffin. Mm. Nothing else we want to say about? No, I, him? I I love him in Barry Lyndon. He is perfect. Yeah, you know, he's mm -hmm. no, I agree. He's perfect because Barry Lyndon is a callow youth character, and that was that O'Neill felt right for that. Yeah, go ahead. Was it because I know you're a big fan of the film? Was yeah. it Kubrick's idea to cast him? Or was it foisted on I believe on him? so. Yeah, I think it was his idea. I think it was okay. his idea. Okay, I was curious. No one foists on Cooper. Well, <laughs> that is his only financially unsuccessful film, and it took a long time for it. Well, but I imagine it because it must have been incredibly expensive yeah. to make. Yeah. yeah, it was expensive to make. I, well, because a lot of people, when they saw that movie at first, they said it was boring. I, which, I mean, 
when I saw it, I was just like, oh, this is great. What, it won four or five Oscars? Won four Oscars. Yeah, I mean... For technical. Yeah, and deserved every one of them. Shirley Ann Field, 87, British film, TV, and stage actress. Started working in the 1950s in film, but made her breakthrough in 1960 when seven movies that she had filmed were released, <laughs> including Basil Deirdre's Man in the Moon opposite Kenneth Moore, Carl Reese's Saturday Night and Sunday Morning opposite Albert Finney, sure. Tony Richardson's The Entertainer opposite Laurence Olivier, and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, where she, she played Pauline Tom? Shields. That's the woman who discovered the body. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, her. Okay, now mm-hmm. I see the face. Yep. Other films include Alfie, the original with Michael Caine. What's mm-hmm. it all about? My, which I just saw the other the other day for the first time since it came out. I was like, oh, I, I realized I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. My Beautiful Laundrette and Hear My Song with Ned Beatty. She was featured on the TV daytime soap opera Santa Barbara and retired in 2014. And sadly, very sadly... This hurts. Yeah. Andre Brower, TV, film, and stage actor. One of the very few actors who became known on television for, for both drama, Homicide, Life on the Edge, and comedy, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He won two Emmys, one for Homicide and one for the limited series Thief, right. and was nominated for nine others. His film debut was in 1989's Glory, Glory right. with Tenzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. And he's excellent. In yes, he is. Other theatrical films include Striking Distance, Primal Fear, Get on the Bus, City of Angels, Poseidon, Fantastic Four, The Rise of the Silver Surfer, Passengers, The Gambler, and most recently as a New York Times executive editor in She Says. Yes, right. His voice was one of gravitas, but in such comedies as Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he used that voice as a weapon and a shield. And to my mind, gave the funniest performance in that show. Oh, and, uh, uh, oh, in, yeah. in a room full of very funny people. Yeah, well, he I, was always the funniest. I, I, I'm not a huge, huge fan of um, Sandberg? Sandberg. I love that series. But though. I do like the series, and I really loved him. But he was the reason I watched it. Well, and here's a reason to hang on to your DVDs, folks, because I would say without a moment's hesitation that my favorite character in the history of television is Frank Pembleton, the detective that Andre Brower played on Homicide. Uh, Homicide. I mean, what life he breathed into that. And Homicide is absolutely unavailable for streaming anywhere. Really? That's right. I don't know. No no one knows why. I have the seven DVD sets. Interesting, because it's often... It's almost always in a list of, of the top five all-time you know, I, series. I'm ashamed it's, to say I've never seen it. It is. Well, you can't. Yeah, there's, no. <laughs> there's no I can borrow it from you. It, that's true. <laughs> but if you ever get a chance, I mean, the combination... We've never seen it. We've seen thousands of police detectives on yeah. TV before and after, but never anybody like Pendleton. And I just... And that the fact that he could, Michael, as you say, turn that around and play a cop for purely comic effect... In Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But he played it so straight. So straight yeah. and just perfect and, and it was, brilliant. And it was so funny. And it w- I, was just, I was just devastated at his loss. Yeah. His, uh, and I, I saw him uh, do Bolingbroke and Richard II. Yeah. At the public. So yeah. did I. Right? That yes. was a great production. Yes. Stephen Burkhoff's production. Right. I yep. saw that too. So He did he did quite a bit at, in, uh, in the park from what yep. I understand. I, wow. What I remember. Love anyway, them. that's it. All right, that's it. Too many. Too, too, too many. All right, so uh, too much loss. 
Um, but now, on a lighter vein, we move on to America's favorite segment of the show. That's right. It's John Meyer's amazing monthly, semi-monthly quote quiz. John, what do you have for us this month? Okay, for the last episode, the quote was, You're about to bust a gut to know what I done, ain't you? <laughs> well, I ain't a guy to let you down. Homicide. That was Henry Fonda in The Grapes of Wrath, directed by John Ford in 1940. And talk about things coming full circle. It takes place in Oklahoma when yeah. he says that line. No, when there were no. moments where the where they were sort of driving through the town, the ramshackle part of town that looked like when the Jodes arrived at the yeah. camp in California, yes. the yes. first camp. Yep. Yeah, I am sure Martin Scorsese has seen he The Grapes of Wrath many it. times. You think? <laughs> you think? He's a big John Ford fan. Um, the new quote is... Not all who wander are aimless, especially not those who seek truth beyond tradition, beyond definition, beyond the image. Ooh. Food for thought for the coming new year. Wow. I'm not even close on that one. Mikey, you? No? All right. We'll have to, we'll have to puzzle our puzzlers like uh, the Grinch does and uh, figure that out. Have you guys watched The Grinch yet or Charlie Brown Christmas? Oh, not the yet. original has yeah. it been on? No, I'm not talking about any garbage three-hour movie. I'm talking about the perfect yeah, little Boris 20-minute yeah. yeah. Boris Karloff. Usually TBS, TBS has it, yeah, but I, I haven't seen it this year yet. You know, it's... it's I've been too busy at the movies every Sunday morning. Well, I mean, took, you know, some time out of seeing Killers of the Flower. I know. Movies. Well, no, there's good stuff coming. I have I have high hopes for stuff that is uh, that is. There coming. are several good movies that I've seen. But so. we will, yeah. I'm gonna fight with you on May December because I think I liked it a little bit. But I'm, you know, I'm a Tom Todd Haynes. I liked it. A lot. Oh, you did like? It. Okay, good. I just right. had tr problems Not with the comedy. score. Yeah, and I don't think it's a comedy. Yeah. Well, the I liked of, it a lot. Choice of music was Who's very it a comedy. That's how it's being marketed, and 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 the critics call it comedy. I mean, well, this is I've a seen dark some comedy. Ads for it, it doesn't look like a comedy. No, it doesn't. It's odd. It's very odd. So, and when we do, when the Oscars come, we will take that opportunity to do our 2023 wrap up, which is turning out to be a fairly good year in very terms good. of films. Yes. So, uh, yes. lots of good stuff to talk about. But twixt then and now, we are going to be doing episode fifty five zero. A millstone, a real millstone, <laughs> and um, I'm an important moment in the lives of Finch's Sand podcasters. We are still, yeah. It's been for we did our first one in April eighteen. I'm like, yeah, it's, really? yeah. Can you imagine? No. Yes. So, and we've all, we've all, you our yeah, audience have grown years. along with us as human beings in that in the interval. I know. I've just aged. And there is a possibility that we are going to do it live. That's what we'd love to do. It involves some setup, but stay tuned. Um, you know, don't, don't touch that dial. We are going to do something very celebratory for our 50th episode. But until then, we want to let you know, as always, that Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production. We want to thank Melissa for her technical help, Jono for the use of the hall, Theo for the ass-kicking logo. Uh, please recall that we are available on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Check out our website uh, for the answer to John's quote quiz and other fun information about our episodes at www.vintagesand.com. So, guys, Merry Christmas. Enjoy your holiday. And happy, happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Woohoo! Yes.
Happy so, holidays to all. Uh, as a Jewish person, Hanukkah is totally sucks compared to Christmas. There, I said it. But I mean, you know. All right. And that's we'll, coming from a Jew. We'll, exactly. We'll take it anyway. So, but everybody enjoy whatever holiday or holidays you celebrate and um, never lose sight, as John said, of what really matters. All you wanderers out there, all you dreamers, uh, be safe and happy until our celebratory episode 50. We end with our usual fervent hope that your favorite films will always be streaming. <laughs>